If you have your Bible with you this morning, would you turn with me please to Exodus chapter 20. And we're reading from verse 12 to the end of the Ten Commandments at verse 17. For those of you watching at home on our live stream broadcast, and if you're joining us for the first time, it will be helpful to you to have a Bible handy on a Sunday morning as we spend time together both here in the main sanctuary and you watching from home spend time in God's Word because we believe that as we open up the Scriptures together, that God speaks into our lives and equips and enables us to live out our faith and to grow and mature in our relationship with him. Over the last couple of weeks, we have been spending Sunday mornings in the Ten Commandments, and today we're coming to commandment number six. So beginning at verse 12 to give a little of the context. Honor your father and your mother, so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his manservant or maidservant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Amen. And we trust that God will bless to us this reading from his holy word. This morning, as we come to the Sixth Commandment, we are about to wrestle with a highly emotive, controversial subject. And we don't do that every Sunday. Some Sundays, we might be looking at how to develop and mature in your relationship with Christ through prayer. On other Sundays, we'll be looking at the guiding and leading and direction of God in our lives. Other times we'll be looking at the equipping and enabling of the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. And this morning we're coming to look at thou shall not murder. And we'll be looking at it in reference to the issue of abortion. So if you're here visiting for the first time or you're watching online for the first time, I apologize. We're coming to a fairly intense study this morning, so please forgive me for that. But on the other hand, we are convinced as a congregation that if we are to live out our faith in a 21st century cultural environment, we need to deal with the messy demands of everyday life. And that means at times we're going to get a little controversial. So please be patient with me this morning as we seek to explore together the sixth commandment, you shall not murder. This past week, I spent uh, four or five days up in Washington, D.C. as part of a church group who were touring Richmond and uh, Jamestown, Yorktown, and finally D.C. And the traffic in D.C. was exceedingly quiet because many of the museums are still closed due to COVID, and so we managed to get around a number of the monuments We came across one monument that I hadn't seen before, and it was particularly moving. And it was a monument to the life's loss during the COVID pandemic. And so I was able to lie down on the ground with my cell phone and capture a quick photograph, and here is the image I was able to capture. And the reason it was so moving was this, that each flag represented a life lost. And there are over 681,000 flags there. 
And what we experienced was this, that as you began to make your way through the flags neatly laid out in squares, that talking ceased. Children weren't running around playing tag with each other as children do in open spaces. But there was a sense of reverential respect and quiet. Because people began to realize that each flag represented a real person. Who 18 months ago was living and breathing just as we are. That here were grandparents and children and next door neighbors and husbands and wives. And that these folks will no longer be able to attend a graduation or a family wedding. Celebrate a child being born into the family. And at Thanksgiving and Christmas there will be an empty chair there at the table. And the overwhelming sadness of the occasion was very real. Real people, real deaths. And I think we responded because as individuals, a society and a culture, we value human life. And we should. In fact, as Christians, we talk about the priority of life, its sacred nature, the sanctity of life. Three or four weeks ago, as we watched the evening news, many of us were horrified that just outside Kabul airport, a suicide bomb was detonated and we lost 13 service personnel and many others injured, along with over 120 Afghanis injured and dead. When a bomb goes off in a marketplace planted there by a terrorist, there is an almost visceral response. Why on earth would you do such a thing? What did that achieve? It achieved absolutely nothing. And the pain becomes very real. And many of us remember the taking of life that took place one Wednesday evening down at Mother Emmanuel Church in Charleston, when after an evening Bible study, a young man who had sat there for an hour, listened to folks share their thoughts on a passage of Scripture and pray together, he withdrew a handgun and killed nine of them. I remember exactly where I was when that news came through. And there is quite naturally outrage when we experience trauma, carnage, violence on that scale. Because life for us is sacred. We see it, in fact, running throughout our history. It's in our foundational documents. We hold these truths to be self-evident. In other words, beyond debate. That all men are created equal. That they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. That among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. An unalienable right. And notice how it begins. It begins with life. And from life flows liberty and the pursuit of happiness. We see it in the United Nations Universal Declaration of Human Rights in Article 3. 
Everyone has the right to life, liberty, and the security of person. And when that life is taken in a violent manner, we have a strong response, and we should have a strong response. And as Christian people, we, of course, know that there's more going on here than first meets the eye. We know that in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, at the moment of creation, the very pinnacle of God's creation, and you see in these opening words, God speaking in Trinitarian form when he says, Let us make man in our image in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. And so God created man in his own image. And by that we mean this. He gave us the ability to grow and mature physically, emotionally, psychologically, educationally, He granted us the innate ability to have rational, logical thought, to develop language and grow as individuals, as families, as societies and nations created in his own image. And when a human life is taken, we naturally respond in a strong manner. Genesis chapter 2, we discover what is distinctive about humanity. God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. A living being that could express love for one another, love for him. You know, the happiness and joy of marriage and families, and the thrill of life itself. Many of you, I think, will be immediately remembering the first question in the shorter catechism. What is man's chief end? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. Enjoy the life he has given to us. All of that is wrapped up in the sanctity of life. Now you may be sitting there saying, Okay, Richard, I agree with what you're saying. That... Life is sacred. I'm not sure why we're spending an entire morning on this. Life is sacred. It's beyond any question. And in fact, we have judicial system that supports that. If you take a life, you'll be arrested, put on trial, sent to prison. Because we believe life is sacred. That it is special, should not be taken lightly. So I'm not quite sure why we're spending a morning looking at it because everyone agrees. Well, does everyone in the 21st century cultural environment believe that life is sacred? Because when you take the conversation to the next level and you begin to ask deeper questions of what is life and when does it begin, that's when the controversy begins. That's when it becomes emotional. That's when it becomes complicated. Let me ask you to use your imagination and deal with a real life issue, real people. Imagine you are 31 years old. Your name is Julie. You have three children under five. And in having three children under five, you have your immediate respect. 
And those children are five, three, and one. Life is busy. It is demanding. Your husband is John. He has a good job. You're deeply in love. You've just purchased a new home, and life is good. On a Monday morning, you dropping the children off at daycare, and as you're walking down the corridor trying to juggle three children plus bags and watching your time, coming the other way is your best friend. Her name is Anne. She has three under eight, loves her children deeply. She's your best friend. You met at college. You have gone on holiday as couples and families, and there is no one you love more than Anne. You see her coming your way, and as you're juggling your children, she smiles and nods and rushes on past, which is a little strange, because normally she stop and help and smile and ask how you are, but that morning, she just rushes on past. You drop off your children, you go back to your car, you're heading for work. Before you start off, you send her a text. Everything okay? And there's a delay. A couple of minutes pass, and eventually a text comes back and says, can't talk right now, we'll phone tonight. And she doesn't phone that evening. And so once your children have their supper, their bath, are changed into their jammies, and you pray with them, put them under the covers, see night-night, you go downstairs, and the first thing you do is phone Anne. And when she hears your voice, she begins to weep. Not a little, but uncontrollably. And you keep repeating, I'm here for you. I'm listening. What's wrong? Tell me. And eventually she's able to pull herself together. And she tells you that last Thursday, John was told that his job will come to an end at the end of the month. And then she moves it to another level again. She says, on Friday I visited my internist. We're expecting baby number four. John has lost his job. We were thinking of moving into a new house. We're devastated. We don't think we can make it. I know I can't cope. And we're thinking of having an abortion. And as Anne's best friend, what do you now say? What do you say to someone you love and love deeply? Do you come out with a trite, it will be okay, every cloud is a silver lining, don't worry. Is that going to be enough? I doubt it. And you need to speak into that situation to bring comfort and support and reassurance. So what do you say? Abortion is indeed a sensitive, complicated, complex topic filled with passion, highly charged discussions that often generate more heat than light. And at its very core lies the profoundly ethical issue Is there life in the womb? Is the fetus 
a human being? Or is it nothing more than an undifferentiated mass of tissue? Well, for all of the complication around the discussion on a controversial, complex issue, let me tell you what science is clear on. And science is clear on this. This comes from the Mayo Clinic website. Approximately 21 days following conception, the fetus develops a heart which begins to pump blood approximately 28 days after conception. Number two, during the fourth week following conception, the lungs, jawbone, and nasal cavity begin to develop. During this period, the hands and feet develop small buds that eventually become fingers and toes. During the fifth week following fertilization, every bodily organ has developed. This comes from the American Pregnancy Association, as does the next few slides. Week five is the start of what's known as the embryonic period. This is when all the baby's major systems and structures develop. Embryo cells multiply and start to take on specific functions. Blood cells, kidney cells, and nerve cells developed. Embryo grows rapidly and the baby's external features begin to form. The baby's brain, spinal cord and heart begin to develop and the gastrointestinal tract starts to form. In week six and seven, arms and leg buds start to grow. The baby's brain forms into five different areas. Some cranial nerves are visible. Eyes and ears begin to form. The baby's heart continues to grow and now beats at a regular rhythm. Blood pumps through the main vessels. In week eight, arms and legs have grown longer. Hands and feet begin to form and look like little paddles. The baby's brain continues to grow and the lungs start to form. In week nine, the baby's nipples and hair follicles form. Arms grow and elbows develop. Toes can be seen. All baby's essential organs have begun to grow. Finally, Science tells us that the entire genetic code which determines a person's physical characteristics, in other words, height, face shape, hair and eye colour, is established at the point of conception. Please hear that. Established at the point of conception. The genetic code is intact, brain waves are evident, and a heartbeat exists. Please hear this. Science is not in doubt that life exists in the womb and it begins at the point of conception. This has been so well established in recent years that both the state of South Carolina and the state of Texas, watching the growth and development of science and examining what is taking place in the womb, put in place earlier this year what is popularly known as the heartbeat bill. And no doubt you've read of the controversy surrounding it. Yet for others, they would say this, okay, we understand there is life in the womb, but there's more to life than a scientific definition. And some would push back and say, Richard, you need to understand the actuality principle. 
And the actuality principle tells us this, a person has the right to life only when capable of functioning in an intellectual, moral, social manner, conscious of surrounding and capable of independent thought and reflection. Then there's life. Scientific definition is one thing, intellectual, moral, social manner, conscious of surroundings, quite another. Well, allow me to push back a little on the actuality principle. Those of you who know me well have heard me say before that back in 2005 I became seriously ill, quite suddenly ill. I was taken to an ICU department in the main hospital that evening, was put into a medically induced coma, was on life support, incapable of breathing on my own. And according to the actuality principle, those last few days of September into October, back in 2005, medical personnel could have approached Ruth and Michael and said, it's time to take him off life support because he's incapable of functioning in an intellectual, moral, social manner, conscious of his surroundings. He is not incapable of independent thought and reflection. He's not capable of any of these. Should my life have been taken that weekend? According to the actuality principle, yes. As Christian people, with a growing, developing, maturing faith, we are called to deal with real-life issues where people are uncertain, hurt, confused, grieving, and don't know what to do. And our job is to come alongside them and support them and pray with them and help in any way we can. When we see life in the womb, we support that life in the womb. But not only that life in the womb, we also support the mother. Care for her. Pray for her. Provide crisis, emergency counselling. Provide options of adoption. Because abortion is not the only option out there. And that is a tough and difficult thing to do. And some of you may be saying, but Richard, what about those hard cases, those extra difficult cases where sexual assault has taken place? And you're right, that has to be dealt with as well. But it is only 3% of unwanted pregnancies. 97% are not. The best figures that I can see is this, that since Roe versus Wade in 1973, over 70 million Children have experienced abortion. Seventy million. Can you imagine the white flags on the mall in Washington for that? As a society, as a culture and a nation, how do we as Christian people speak into that situation? Allow me to share with you And I shared this about three or four years ago, which I think was the last Sunday morning. We focused on abortion, a letter from a lady in the congregation. And this is what she writes. My first abortion was at age 18. I was young, naive, and one of the good girls. He was handsome, a pastor's son. 
and a few years older than I was. He was my first love. He gave me a pre-engagement ring, and I gave him my virginity. My mother and the doctor arranged for the abortion to be in the hospital, and I was told it was just a blob of tissue. Afterwards, the abortion was never talked about in my family or by my boyfriend. It was as if it never happened. It caused our relationship to end. I was heartbroken, and my innocence was shattered. Consequently, my life took an entirely different direction than it would have had I followed God in those early years. My second abortion was at age 24. My boyfriend of three years insisted I have the abortion. I sobbed as he yelled at me all the way to the abortion clinic. He dropped me off, paid for it, and then went off to work. I had never felt so alone or full of despair as that day. I don't remember a lot about it. I only told one good friend what had happened, but not my mother. I was too ashamed. The relationship broke up shortly after the abortion as well. In 1981, at age 27, I got pregnant again. This time I knew without a doubt that I would not have another abortion. This time I knew that I would choose life for the baby. We married We had two more beautiful children. We were married for 11 years until he suddenly died. During my years as a single mother, God was pursuing me. And finally I surrendered and gave my life to him. I finally accepted that he truly loved me and had forgiven my sins of the past. God redeemed me. He gave me a brand new life in Christ. 35 years after my first abortion... I attended a forgiven and set free Bible study by Piedmont Women's Centre. There I learned that God has removed my sins as far as the east is from the west. He would remember them no more. I was truly healed and set free from the guilt and shame I had carried all those years. Now, my favourite verse comes from Isaiah chapter 43. Fear not. For I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. The difference between my old life and new life in Christ has been a miraculous testimony of God's transforming and redeeming love and grace and mercy. Oh, incidentally, the baby daughter I choose life for got married in 2001 and has blessed me with two precious grandchildren that I love with all my heart and I thank God every day for eternally changing my family tree. Poor choices, bad decisions, regrets of the past do not determine who we are in the eyes of God. For when he looks at each one of us, he sees his children. Children he is deeply in love with. Children he wants to restore and bring wholeness and healing to. And he offers each one of us a chance to begin again. The next time you find yourself in a situation where abortion is being discussed, your job as Christian people is to take a scriptural stance and to do so 
quietly, graciously, lovingly, but nonetheless take a stand. Your job is to offer other options other than abortion and to be there carefully, prayerfully highlighting adoption as a very real choice. We may live in a day and age and in a nation where abortion is common and every day. But I can't help but wonder if the tide is not changing and the sanctity and priority of life will once again be a priority for us as a nation. And why? Because we hold life to be self Evident, And as Christians, we are called by God to hold on to that life. Hold it up as being created in His image. And trust and believe that He can redeem us as both individuals and as a society and a nation. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for that powerful reminder this morning. That you are a God deeply in love with us. Thank you for the reminder that poor decisions, bad choices, do not determine who we are. But with a deep, profound trust in you and giving our lives over to you, you can redeem any situation. And so, Father, we thank you for the depth of your love for us. And we ask that we would know the reality of what it means to be able to sing with all our hearts, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. Father, bless us as we seek to live out our faith for You. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.